From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Abortion access in Colorado is now protected by law, but activists want to enshrine reproductive rights in the state constitution and repeal the ban on state funding for abortion. In our regular interview, Governor Jared Polis won't commit to what he calls those hypotheticals. Now, if you're asking about other proposals, I want to see them. Of course, I'm pro-choice. I don't think women or doctors should ever face the threat of prison or prison for making very difficult decisions about uh, whether to terminate a pregnancy. So I'm happy to look at any other proposals along those lines, but I'm very proud that no matter what happens, Roe versus Wade, Colorado will remain a state where it is legal to end a pregnancy. Plus, why he'll sign the fentanyl bill, then taking stock of Denver's urban camping ban a decade on. Your membership does more than fund the news and music you rely on. It helps build a statewide community through shared experiences. Your gift means culture can be explored. It means stories can be told from the Western Slope, the Eastern Plains, and from up and down the Front Range. CPR can serve your community and other communities across Colorado because of your support. Thank you. Not a member yet? Join now at CPR.org. With Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC, I'm Ryan Warner. These are very likely the last days of Roe versus Wade. A formal ruling from the U.S. Supreme Court is expected soon after a draft opinion leaked. But states, both red and blue, are moving as if abortion is no longer protected federally. That's where we'll start our regular interview with Governor Jared Polis, recorded Monday afternoon. We also talked about a major bill that awaits his signature to crack down on fentanyl. Governor, thank you for being with us again. Ryan, it's a pleasure, and I I hope you're feeling better. Kind of you to say. um, I had COVID and am recovering. You signed a bill into law that protects abortion access in the state, but activists want to go further in 2024, enshrining reproductive rights into the state constitution, and at the same time, removing a ban on state funding for abortions which voters approved in the early 80s. Here is Karen Middleton, head of the group Cobalt. Not just Medicaid for abortion care or any kind of abortion care, but also if you're a state employee, you might not be able to have abortion included in your insurance plan. There may be other restrictions that go beyond just Medicaid funding. Governor, I'd like to get you on the record. Do you support removing the ban on state funding for abortion? My goodness, Ryan, as usual, you're just moving so fast. Um, We just signed a law that protects the right to choose in state law. To be clear, Colorado has been a pro-choice state where abortion has been legal since 1967, uh, when Republican Governor John Love signed the law allowing ahead of uh, allowing a woman to terminate her pregnancy ahead of Roe versus Wade several years before Roe versus Wade. What we are all uh, afraid of and worried about with the legal Supreme Court case is those national protections disappear, which is why we now have them specifically in Colorado law. Now, if you're asking about other proposals, 
I want to see them. Of course, I'm pro-choice, always have been, always expect to be. I don't think women or doctors should ever face the threat of prison or prison uh, for making very difficult decisions uh, about uh, whether to terminate a pregnancy. So I'm happy to look at any other proposals along those lines, uh, but I'm very proud that no matter what happens, Roe Ro versus Wade, Colorado will remain a state where it is legal to end a pregnancy. I know that you don't have a specific proposal to look at right now, but what we do know is that there is a ban on state funding for abortions in Colorado's Constitution as we speak, and it has been there for uh, a generation. Do you think that it's wise to keep that in the state constitution? So, look, the procedure for changing the constitution um, doesn't doesn't come through the governor. Happy to look at any proposal and share my thoughts, uh, but it requires a 55 percent vote of the people of Colorado. So if, 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 if somebody brings forward and collects petitions and puts it on the ballot, it would require a supermajority, 55 percent. Uh, it would then be part of our Constitution. I'm happy to look at any proposal on those lines. I've, I've not seen one yet. Does Jared Polis think that state funds should be used for abortions? Well, look, you probably get into the situation then, Ryan, of is it a medically required uh, abortion in that it will jeopardize the life of the mother uh, or the, um, you know, is, is dangerous or is this something that you're talking about that's more elective? So there's a lot of nuances to that policy. In general, the state doesn't cover elective procedures. But even if you look at like plastic surgery, there's reconstructive plastic surgery if you're in an accident. And then there's such things like a nose job if you want to look better. So I can't possibly get into what the state insurance plan covers. That's a negotiation we have. We want to give the very best coverage to our state employees at the lowest possible cost. Uh, we actually reduce the cost of our state employees that they have to pay for insurance. We want to continue to do that. But obviously, that's not the kind of policy that's normally dictated in a state constitution. We just want to get the best deal possible and the most benefits possible for our state employees because we value the retention uh, of our state employee workforce. I don't think I hear you uh, being willing to commit at this point to saying whether state funds should pay for well, abortion. I, I just don't sort. really hear a specific policy proposal there, Ryan. You know, it's really when you talk about things at the conceptual level, it's easy to say, I, you know, this isn't that conceptual. That. The question is, what are we talking about here? Are you talking about something that costs the state money and every state employee would have to pay more for insurance? I would be very skeptical of that. I want to save people money on insurance. Are we talking about something that decreases insurance costs? I am for that. So, uh, you know, show me what it means. Happy to share my thoughts. But at this point, there's not even been a proposal, no less something that's on the ballot. Would you like to see abortion access cemented in the state constitution, given that what you signed this session was statutory? So you're getting, again, very hypothetical, haven't seen language, but I am pro-choice, want to protect a woman's right to choose. Uh, we did it in statute. If you put something similar uh, in the constitution that uh, that made sure that women wouldn't be put in jail and doctors wouldn't be put in jail, uh, for any pregnancies, of course, I'd be inclined to support it, but I'd want to see what that was and what you're doing first and that there weren't any unintended consequences. Given the coming reversal from the Supreme Court on abortion and the right to privacy, John Costello of Fort Collins wonders what other protections might be in jeopardy um, and that Colorado might also want to enshrine. What other rights do you feel need to be ensured at the state level? Contraception, gay as well as interracial marriage, consensual sex acts, maybe something else. Governor, what do you say? Well, look, I, I'm always for freedom and for people's ability to make their own decisions. So I don't see any downside to 
protecting contraception and same-sex marriage and state law. I, you know, again, would want to see what those proposals were. But if it protects and expands our freedoms, I'm for it. Um, and if there's a threat to these freedoms from the our own Supreme Court or Congress, uh, we want Colorado to be a place where we're able to protect people's freedom and the choices people make. Your right to marry your husband is actually newer case law than Roe v. Wade. Do you worry about the future, say, of your marriage in terms of federal recognition, uh, given the makeup of the court? Well, I sure hope it doesn't come to that, right? And and I think it's very important that we respect marriage. I, as I said, I'd support uh, it in our you know state law that that makes it explicit here in Colorado because we don't currently have that. We just have same sex marriage because of the Supreme Court, which we're grateful for. You know, like you, Ryan, I kind of grew up in a time where we looked aspirationally and hopefully towards the Supreme Court for expanding freedom, right? We read about historic uh, decisions like Brown versus Edge Board of Education that integrated our schools, Loving, which allowed for interracial marriage, of course, Roe versus Wade, Oberfell Hodges, which allowed same-sex marriage. I, I do worry, like a lot of Coloradans do, that we're now in a situation where we're worried about the Supreme Court taking away our freedoms. And of course, as Coloradans, we want to stand up for protecting our freedoms. The state legislature has adjourned. A parade of bills is headed to your desk. One piece of legislation that seems to leave just about everyone displeased is the fentanyl bill. Uh, Overdoses here are some of the highest in the country. Conservatives say the bill doesn't go far enough in terms of penalties. Progressives say this is the failed war on drugs all over again. Governor, last time we spoke... You said that you'd sign any legislation that toughens penalties, which this does. So can I assume that you'll sign this bill? Yes, Ryan, you know, uh, unlike your other extremely hypothetical questions, this is a bill that I've read that is on our desk and I will sign it. So I'm happy to tell you that because um, I know what's in it. We provided input. It is a compromise. Uh, Sometimes when you know, the far left and far right are both upset about something, you know, it probably makes some sense and is a good path forward. This is a comprehensive bill, Ryan. Um, People focus on the criminal penalties. And yes, criminal penalties on dealers, on pill presses, very important. This bill is a lot more than that. It's about treatment for addicts. It's about getting detection kits and strips into the field so that we can identify when other substances are infiltrated with fentanyl earlier in the process. So rather than finding dead bodies or hospitalizations, we can identify where something's contaminated early and go after those responsible. So absolutely, this bill is a step towards making Colorado one of the 10 safest states over the next five years, which is my express goal that really informs all my work around public safety. Are there unintended consequences or perverse outcomes that you will be looking for uh, that tell you the bill isn't doing what it intends to do? Yeah, um, I'm tracking uh, fentanyl deaths. So uh, we uh, expect with these new tools that fentanyl deaths will go down uh, in the year after it gets implemented. And, um, you know, we want to adjust it along the way to make it work even better. But that's the that's the bottom line indicator here, uh, saving lives. What about on the criminal justice side? Are there potentially perverse outcomes in terms of sentences uh, that would alarm you? Uh, You know, there's not really because in the bill as as uh, passed, there's a lot stronger penalties for fentanyl dealers and those who mix in 
and have the the, the pill mixes and, and and contaminate other products with fentanyl. And yeah, they are killing and poisoning people, and they should be behind bars for many many years. And uh, that's what this bill does. So uh, it's a good step forward. And uh, I'm uh, the new treatment options for addicts will absolutely help people recover their lives and their dignity. Uh, you know, when 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 you or I have a friend or a relative that is battling addiction, uh, they get the help they need. M many members of our indigent population or homeless population just don't have those options. This bill will help expand options alongside our behavioral health package to make sure that there's better treatment options and support for people to become sober and stay sober. Some people don't know that the drugs they have are laced with fentanyl. It's been one of the arguments, which is that how do you hold someone responsible for something they weren't aware of? Uh, are you concerned about that? Well, that's what's particularly nefarious about fentanyl is it is contaminating and poisoning other drugs, um, and including legal drugs like marijuana. Now, if you buy your marijuana from a legal supplier, the chances are minimal. But if you're buying street marijuana, illegal marijuana, it's yet another reason not to, by the way, because that, that could absolutely be contaminated. Uh, cocaine is contaminated. Other opioids are contaminated. Um, you know, frankly, this should be a wake-up call to all drug users and addicts seek help because in addition to whatever risks you've made perhaps made peace with, this is a significant additional risk for the drug users of Colorado above and beyond the normal risks of drug use. Do you think the war on drugs was successful? And do you think this is different from it? Uh, well, you know, I've long called the war on drugs a failure. I'm proud of Colorado legalizing marijuana, first state to do so. Uh, legalizing marijuana did not increase underage use. It does lead to a safer marijuana supply. In fact, this is a perfect example. For states where marijuana is still underground and illegal, it's a lot more likely to be contaminated with fentanyl or other toxins. Um, that could kill or severely harm people. Here in Colorado, I'm proud of our regulatory system. We have a good regulatory system, just like moonshine killed people when alcohol was illegal, because if it's improperly made, it can be contaminated. These days, you go to a liquor store or Safeway, wherever you go, uh, you know, unless you drink too much and have alcohol poisoning, alcohol is, is not in low amounts toxic. Same with marijuana. So it's a good reason to regulate um, and make sure we have safe marijuana, alcohol, and of course, uh, we're now worried about fentanyl uh, infiltrating other drug supplies. And again, it's not that cocaine isn't dangerous, it is, but a total different category of risk than fentanyl, which can kill instantly and quickly. Many drugs like meth and cocaine kill slowly over time. Very different attribute. You've spoken uh, several times about treatment. Does Colorado have the treatment infrastructure in place to truly address the addiction side of this? So with the one-time funds that Colorado received under the American Rescue Act, um, working with Republicans and Democrats in our legislature, we identified really three major areas for investment. Uh, housing and affordability, and I hope we get to that because we need to make housing more affordable. Workforce development, opportunities for training. The third is what speaks to this, behavioral health. And a big part of that is expanding access for drug and alcohol treatment facilities uh, residential several months to help get people clean and stay clean, to give them the benefit of the best possible science and treatment around addiction recovery uh, and the best chance of recovering their dignity and being able to get their lives back. So you think that that investment will cover it or there'll need to be more? Uh, it'll generate uh, hundreds of new beds, upwards of uh, a thousand new uh, short to medium term treatment facilities. We also have funding for 
uh, step down and of course, uh, immediate uh, detox facilities. So, uh, you know, again, it all depends on what what the demand is. I'm also hoping that fentanyl is a wake up call to potential drug users to avoid illicit drug use. Uh, if you want to recreate safely, you can use substances that are uh, regulated in a, in a safe environment in moderation, like alcohol or marijuana. But at this point, anything underground is dangerous because fentanyl has indeed contaminated uh, a significant part of it, and it can be fatal on the first dose. And sadly, it is fatal on the first dose for far too many people. The bill to ban flavored tobacco products statewide failed this session. You were vocally opposed to it, saying it should really be up to local governments, something you've said on this program. Um, but your drumbeat, and we've heard it already in this conversation, uh, is to save people money on health care. With that in mind, an analysis from a noted California tobacco researcher cited uh, by the Campaign for Tobacco-Free Kids found that a 1% reduction in cigarette smoking would save the state $46 million the following year in Medicaid costs. So if banning flavored tobacco helps you achieve a savings, why wouldn't you support it statewide? Well, this is a similar discussion to the last one. Uh, I don't support banning marijuana or, or banning liquor or alcohol or banning smoking. I mean, these are these are freedom issues. Now, look, it, it doesn't mean that any particular city has to permit a dispensary. I don't think I don't I don't view that as a right. I view that as a local decision. So obviously, in a state where uh, it's up to cities whether they have marijuana or not, it's up to cities whether they sell liquor or not. Uh, of course, it would be up to cities whether they allow legal to legal tobacco products or not. And uh, most of them do. And uh, again, that's a freedom Coloradans have. And I don't personally smoke, but um, I, you know, and I don't personally use marijuana and I don't personally drink more than maybe one beer every other month or something like that. So these are not things that I personally partake in. But of course, I fully respect uh, the ability of adults to make their own choices in our state. And that for you trumps the savings in this case. Well, look, I would say more to ban alcohol. My goodness, look at the horrible human cost of drunk driving, uh, of alcoholism. Uh, and the nation tried that and failed. It would save money to ban, uh, you know, marijuana. Um, it would save money to do a relative, you know, ban pizza because it leads to clogged arteries. It would save money to ban steak. Uh, this is a freedom issue. Uh, and I absolutely think I'm cooking steak tonight for the kids. Uh, and in moderation, that's okay. Uh, and of course, um, you know, for those who drink or, or smoke marijuana uh, in moderation, um, you know, it, it's, it's one factor in many uh, of their overall health picture. And uh, fundamentally, I, I believe that people have the adults have the ability to make that choice here in our state. And I'm proud that we're one of the first states to legalize marijuana. The industry vastly outspent tobacco control advocates when an increase in the tobacco tax failed at the ballot box in 2016. Uh, in Denver last year, the mayor vetoed a flavor ban, saying this is a state issue. Uh, meanwhile, again, you say it's up to locals. And I'm left to wonder, does the tobacco industry call the shots in Colorado, Governor Polis? Uh, I don't think they have uh, much of an influence here like they might have in tobacco growing states. Uh, I think in our state, most people want marijuana to be legal, tobacco, uh, alcohol, uh, you know, frankly, if they had to ban one of those three, uh, the one that causes the most harm is alcohol. Uh, between alcohol, tobacco, and marijuana, alcohol is the worst, but um, neither I personally nor the people of Colorado want, want Colorado to be a dry state. The legislature passed a bill this session meant to help residents of mobile home parks. 
It would require owners to take better care of common areas and utilities, among other things. But residents say what they really need is some sort of rent control, just something you threatened to veto earlier this session. Uh, Your office said you would support reforms that won't lead to closure or abandonment of mobile home communities. What evidence do you have that rent stabilization would lead to closures? Well, first, let's talk about what we what we did pass. Certainly, uh, Senate Bill 22160, which provides $35 million in funds for residents of mobile home parks to purchase their park. Um, we also have a right of refusal that residents have to do that. Uh, the, the issue with regards to uh, say only allowing a 3% increase a year or something like that is there simply won't be any mobile home parks in another 10 or 15 years with inflation at seven or 8%, uh, mobile home parks would rapidly be redeveloped into apartments and other utilizations. You could argue that's a good thing or a bad thing, but I don't think the state policy should force that fundamentally. I believe mobile home parks are a good thing to have. It's good to have affordable housing. It's entry level for many people. And I'd like to keep it as affordable as possible rather than see them disappear. And so you think rent stabilization would lead to their disappearance? You think that's a market force? Is it something you've seen elsewhere? Well, it's, it's, just, it's just sort of obvious. I mean, if it, it, no one's forcing it to be a mobile home park. So if, if, a, if you can make more money as a development, you're going to develop it. Uh, and rent has to keep up with inflation and, 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 and the way rent occurs in apartments and everywhere else. So, I mean, with inflation at 7 or 8%, you'd lose 80 or 90% of the mobile homes in the state within a decade. Uh, if you if you limited it to two or three percent. So I think that's a bad outcome for our state. I think it's important to have mobile home parks. And frankly, they're a big part of the housing solution. And I'm hoping that our additional funding will help residents of mobile home parks purchase those parks. And then, of course, uh, there's no longer that economic pressure uh, for increased rent. They're effectively running it as a co-op, which is a good long term sustainable model for keeping rent low. You signed a property tax package that would temporarily reduce assessment rates and save a homeowner's approximately $700 million over the next two years. But in 2020, voters repealed the Gallagher Amendment, which already kept residential property taxes low. Um, Does this latest package just kind of undo what voters approved two years ago? Uh, First of all, voters did not approve a statewide property tax increase. They approved a repeal of a arbitrary statewide formula uh, that had different impacts in different areas. Uh, we are my my big focus uh, is saving people money. Always has been saving people money on health care was the first effort we tasked our lieutenant governor with. We reduced insurance rates in the health care exchange by over 20 percent. Now we're reducing property taxes by over seven hundred million dollars across the state, uh, which helps to lead it, re- deliver a needed relief to homeowners and small business owners in every part of our state. Look, if you're fortunate enough to own a home or business, you benefit from increased value of that property. But what good is that if your income hasn't kept up with that rate of increase? And so I'm really excited that I was able to sign a bill today that delivered really meaningful property tax cuts for every Colorado homeowner and business. There will be a ballot measure this fall to cover the cost of school meals for all students by limiting tax deductions for people earning $300,000 or more. This would essentially permanently extend universal meal access that started because of pandemic emergency relief. Chalkbeat the education publication, reports that many districts saw more kids eating lunch when it was more universally offered. 
Uh, do you support this ballot measure, Governor, which the legislature actually sent to the ballot? Yeah. So, Ryan, that's also something that did not come to the governor, meaning I haven't read it or seen it yet. Like every voter, I'll look at my blue book when I get it and I'll look at the arguments for and against it and I'll cast my ballot just like every other Colorado does. It sounds to me like you aren't going to be front and center for that measure, even if you supported it then. Well, I, I'm not uh, really aware of what it is. It, it's not part of the business of the governor, which m- keeps me more than busy, Ryan. But I'm a voter, too. I care about our state. Uh, I usually review ballot initiatives. And there's, you know, there's. I think this is the time period is still open when others will qualify. Uh, there will probably be a number of those. I'm, If I have an opinion after researching both sides, I'm never shy about sharing that with, with other people. And um, I'll look forward to, you know, looking at what's on the ballot. And I said, it's not it's not done yet. There's initiatives out there. I don't think we know what's on our ballot till August and, uh, with regard to all the different initiatives that could occur. All right. Something we might uh, circle back and ask you about. And I do want to ask about COVID-19. Uh, not just because I got it for the first time, but modeling by the Colorado School of Public Health indicates infections are on an upward trajectory. Uh, Projections are that hospitalizations could reach 500 or more by mid-June. I'll note that in your own backyard, Boulder, the city council is back to remote meetings because of the spread. Uh, Is the state taking any specific steps at this point? So, yeah, those are the same models that inform our actions, and we are not concerned about statewide hospital capacity. Uh, if uh, there are 500 people hospitalized from COVID, we've, we've been up around 17, 1800. Our, our, our promise from the start was not to overwhelm our hospitals. We avoided doing that. The reason that's less of a danger now is there's not only uh, more resistance uh, for those who are vaccinated, but there is a significantly reduced likelihood of hospitalization for folks who have been triple vaccinated and even for people who've been double vaccinated as well as people who've had prior infections. So at this point, uh, as you indicated, I think we're at 124 people hospitalized today. Uh, some of the projections show it increasing over the next uh, few weeks or months, but none of them show it anywhere close to as high uh, as it was during the uh, Delta wave or the Omicron wave. So this is something you're monitoring, but it doesn't sound like you're prepared to take any major policy steps at this point. Well, I would point for our post-COVID roadmap. There's several bills that have passed the legislature that I'll be signing that better prepare us for the future. In terms of surge planning at hospitals, uh, we, as you know, have uh, testing and, and free masks available across the state, medical grade. So there's a number of ongoing steps that we're taking uh, and also making sure that we're never in the dire straits that we were uh, in the heat of the pandemic. Governor, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. We speak with Colorado's governor regularly, and Democrat Jared Polis is up for re-election this year. We'll extend an invitation to his Republican opponent once the GOP holds its primary. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with a checkup on Denver's urban camping ban. It turns 10 today. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC. Colorado's FBI field office topped the nation in bank robberies last year. Typically, bank robberies are committed by individuals as an act of desperation where they need the money for some personal reason. But more often than not, it's to feed a drug addiction. Bandits make off with amounts that range from a couple of hundred dollars to several thousand dollars. But usually no one gets hurt. What goes down in a bank robbery and why does Colorado see so many? Read all about it at CPR.org.
Ten years ago, so May 17th, 2012, Denver Mayor Michael Hancock signed a bill to ban unauthorized camping in the city. It is a policy critics said criminalized homelessness. The ban is still in effect, even as the number of people experiencing homelessness has multiplied. Denverite's Kyle Harris has been looking into the ban's widely debated history and where things stand today. Hi, Kyle. Hi, Ryan. What was happening in Denver 10 years ago that sparked the urban camping ban? Well, so back then, Senator John Hickenlooper, who was Denver's mayor, he had this 10-year plan to end homelessness. And that started in 2005. No doubt the thing did not work. Um, Mayor Hancock, he comes into office in 2011. Denver's coming out of the Great Recession. Homelessness is extremely visible all over the city, particularly along the 16th Street Mall, uh, downtown where most of the shelters and also homeless services are located. So the shelters at the time were packed. They were often at capacity and there weren't really other places for people to go. And there are many reasons, anyhow, that people might want to stay out of the shelters altogether. Yeah, like what? Well, let's say you have a partner um, and you want to stay with your partner. You can't do that in the shelters. You have a pet. You can't bring your pet inside back then. Um, Many people uh, have mental health issues. And some of those mental health issues mean you go into a shelter and you absolutely cannot handle being around a crowd without flipping. So you're safer outside. Um, And then some people just feel safer outside in general. For addicts, going into a shelter can mean going into withdrawal uh, because drug use isn't allowed inside. And when you go into withdrawal, that's extremely tough and can even be lethal. So didn't the ban go into place around the Occupy Denver protests as well? Exactly. Yes. So Occupy Denver, if you you recall, was part of an international kind of anti-capitalist movement. The group had been camping, Occupy Denver had been camping in Civic Center Park since the fall of 2011. And Denver police had pushed out that encampment, but there were still people living in the park. And, you know, city boosters, people around town wanted the park back. Okay, so these are some of the forces that lead officials to take action. Exactly. So for Hancock and for city council member Albus Brooks, that basically meant um, proposing the urban camping ban. And that ban proved to be one of the most contentious policies in Denver City Council history. It has been controversial elsewhere in the state and the country as well. What was Denver's ban designed to do? Well, the, the, the ban itself would make sleeping on the streets illegal uh, if you didn't have a permit. That would be anywhere in the city of Denver. And the idea was that this ban was going to give police a tool to push people toward social services, toward shelter, and get people off the street and also out of the public eye. Who else was behind it? Oh, there were a bunch of groups, including Visit Denver, the Downtown Denver Partnership, uh, Civic Center Conservancy. They were all about it. Um, And they were arguing that unsheltered homelessness was hurting business and and tourism. Here's Downtown Denver Partnership's former head, Tammy Dorr, advocating for the ban to council in 2012. We recognize that certain behaviors can cause severe impacts on the downtown environment. Unauthorized camping is a significant problem that affects businesses, residents, workers, and visitors that frequent downtown. And unfortunately, this problem is getting worse. We absolutely need to foster a safe and humane environment in downtown, and it requires both incentives that allow and encourage individuals on the street to seek meaningful change in their lives, and also to provide consequences for those who refuse assistance and continue to engage in behaviors that threatened public safety and health. Okay, so that tape from just about 10 years ago. Who opposed the ban at the time? 
A lot of people opposed it. Unhoused people, for one, doctors, social workers, and the Colorado Coalition for the Homeless all spoke out against the ban. The argument was that it would push people away from services and into greater isolation, that it would backfire. And uh, these folks feared mass arrests, and they said the law would make being homeless a crime. Here's Colorado Coalition for the Homeless's longtime head, John Pervinsky, talking to counsel. We believe this ordinance will be counterproductive, forcing those without shelter further into our neighborhoods, further out of sight, making outreach and engagement even more difficult, and creating additional barriers to housing and employment for those that we are trying to help. We believe that the right course is to create real solutions to the lack of housing and shelter by creating and expanding emergency shelter, expanding access to mental health and substance treatment services, and developing long-term supportive housing resources. And so, Kyle Harris, over the past decade, what has happened? Well, interestingly, over the years, the ban has not led to many arrests and citations. So as of March 20th, Denver police said they'd arrested just three people in those 10 years and ticketed another 45 for violations of unauthorized camping. And that was since the law passed. In 2019, a group tried to overturn the camping ban at the ballot. That was I-300, if you remember. And at first, the public seemed really excited, willing to do it. But then there was a $2 million campaign to defeat the bill. And 81% of Denver voters ultimately decided to keep the camping ban intact. Um, Last week, I caught up with John Pervinsky of the Colorado Coalition for the Homeless, and he told me that not just the camping ban, but the sweeps of encampments, which are a slightly different policy, have made it harder for his agency to do its job and connect people with the the housing and the medical services that they need. Are proponents of the ban happy 10 years on? (laughs) Well, in a recent newsletter, one new group, Citizens for a Safe and Clean Denver, wrote, With the many tents and encampments around Denver today, it's difficult to imagine there is a ban. Hmm. So I don't think anyone's like walking around Denver feeling like homelessness is some sort of thing of the past. Um, There are a lot of encampments through the city and many residents say they're frustrated that there's a ban, but it doesn't seem like the city's actually enforcing it. Uh, So safe and clean, they want to see more people who choose not to accept shelter be arrested. And for those... um, who maybe are struggling with addiction or mental health issues, they want to see law enforcement push them into treatment and stronger involuntary commitment laws. Um, And they and pretty much everybody I've spoken to notes that the city needs and the state needs more inpatient treatment facilities. How are critics of the camping ban marking this 10th anniversary? Okay, so last week there was a group of them that that spent the entire week protesting the ban and describing the last 10 years as, quote-unquote, the decade of doom. The activists took over city council uh, to express their frustration, arguing that the law is still criminalizing unhoused people and that that's wrong. Here's Kenny White speaking to city council last week. The shelters have not improved. The cops have not improved. Things have not improved over this decade trying to make this apparent law a better place so you can sweep human lives under the rug. It's unacceptable, and it's disgusting. Well, I think back to that 10-year plan to end homelessness, which did not achieve the mission in its title. Camping ban aside, Kyle, what has Denver done to address the issue of homelessness? The city has actually done quite a lot. So Denver has more shelter beds now than it did before. 
Uh, one of the big sticking points before was there weren't 24-7 shelters where people could go without having to check in every day. Those now exist. Um, the city has housed thousands of people and built thousands of units of affordable housing uh, with more in the works, though it's still not enough. We're about 50,000 units of affordable housing behind. Mental health and addiction services, though, in the city and in the state are still lagging uh, way behind. City Council is also working right now on an affordable housing plan that would push developers to do more to address the housing crisis. And that's going to go up for a vote in June. An issue that continues and that you'll continue to cover. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, Ryan. You can read Kyle Harris's reporting on homelessness and the urban camping ban at denverite.com. Meanwhile, Denver's launching a program to transform empty office space downtown into housing. The city faces a glut of unused space as more companies let employees work remotely during the pandemic. CPR business reporter Sarah Mulholland has this story. At first glance, 1600 Glenorm Place blends in with all the other office towers on the 16th Street Mall in downtown Denver until you see the sign for residence parking. The property started out as headquarters for an insurance company in the 1960s. Now it's an apartment complex with more than 300 units. The conversion seems to have worked out pretty well. They've got an outdoor patio that they uh, put chairs and stuff to be able to overlook 16th Street Mall. Um, Pool table, ping pong table. Yeah, it's good. Good stuff. That's Kyle Witherspoon. He's lived in the building for two years. Sometimes things like sunlight and fresh air are tricky when converting an office building because they're not meant to be lived in. But Witherspoon says he doesn't notice anything being off. I didn't even know it was an office building, so I'd recommend it. 1600 Glenarm hasn't been an office building for more than 15 years, but there's still people working here. Like Witherspoon, he does his job as an insurance appraiser from home. He's part of an army of office workers in Denver and around the country, still working from home after COVID-19 forced people to more than two years ago. Workers are starting to trickle back in, but city leaders say the office is probably never going back to the way it used to be. A recent report from real estate services company CBRE says about a quarter of office space in Denver's central business district is now sitting empty. That means landlords have a lot of space they don't know what to do with. And the city wants to make it easier for them to convert that space into homes by using incentives to encourage developers to turn those buildings into housing. Lily Janyans is a city planner for Denver. We started to do our research and wanted to explore what other cities are doing and uh, what other cities have done in the past um, in kind of similar situations. And what came up time and time again is that not only in this pandemic process, but even prior to pandemic in the recession times as well, um, that cities would repivot themselves. She says less than 10 percent of commercial space in downtown Denver is residential. She sees an opportunity to change that to 40 percent over the next decade, which she says would be better for everyone. A more integrated neighborhood could reduce traffic and make commuting easier and attract different kinds of retailers and restaurants. Right now, the city's plans are in their infancy. We should have been doing this and cities across America should be doing this for the last 10 plus years. But the pandemic, again, is like it's compounded all those issues that were already there. It's not going to be easy. These kinds of projects are really expensive. The city will have to balance the need for affordable housing against developers' desires for profits. 
There aren't a lot of details yet on how that's all going to work. And there aren't a lot of buildings in downtown Denver to use as an example. The building on Glen Arm is pretty much the only modern one in the area. But at least one landlord, whose building is just around the corner, is open to the idea. The owner of the Petroleum Building recently filed a plan with the city to turn it into apartments. It's still preliminary, but John Borst, the owner, says if he can make the numbers work for apartments, that's probably the best option at this point. He lost tenants during the pandemic, and the building's now more than half empty. The Petroleum Building was kind of a big deal when it was built in the 1950s. The upper floors were a decadent meeting space for the region's oil and gas business. It was actually the tallest building in downtown Denver for actually just about, what was it, a week or two before the Sheridan right across the street was built, and it's a little bit taller. So it it had that crown of tallest building in Denver for about a week before that was snatched from it. This was a big grand lobby and and a big tall building, so it's funny how times have changed. Borst says its next iteration could be more than 100. 130 apartments. If the city gets its way, that could be the start of a trend. I'm Sarah Mulholland, CPR News. You will know it is time to turn the page when you hear the chimes ring like this. Yes, we have chosen another book to read together. Our next pick for Turn the Page is the true story of a Colorado private investigator. It's called Tell Me Everything. The author, Erica Krauss, was assigned to one of the most important rape cases in U.S. history. It tested the scope of Title IX, which prevents discrimination based on sex in education. Read Krauss's book and then join me and meet the author and really meet her because our next turn the page is in person the evening of June 10th. It's at Lit Fest in Denver. Tickets are free and all the details are at CPR.org slash turn the page. Again, the book is Tell Me Everything by Erica Krauss. Get your copy and then join us. Here's that URL one more time. CPR.org slash turn the page. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It takes a committed team with roles on and off the air to make Colorado Public Radio, and your skill set and experience may be just what we're looking for. With a job opening now to join the Denverite team, reporting for the curious and concerned about everything making the Mile High City tick. See all open job opportunities and what working at CPR is like at CPR.org careers. When it comes to electric car brands, chances are you've heard of Tesla, but not unique mobility. The Colorado company tried to revolutionize driving in the 1970s and 80s. Now hobbyists are restoring these vehicles. They're also rediscovering the history behind them. CPR Sam Brash reports. 19-year-old Declan Kavanaugh is straight-up giddy, opening his garage door in Monument, Colorado. Inside is a car that's consumed the last two years of his life. This is a 1980 Unique Mobility Electric. Uh, It's a little white coupe, very ugly. It has a face that only a mother could love. I am their mother, so... He's right. The car is just goofy, almost like someone melted a Ford Pinto in a gigantic microwave. It has a, a weird body line that kind of dips down like a V in the window. Oversized wheel arches that stick out just a little bit too far. And the quirks continue inside the car. You got these amazing windows. They're called guillotine windows. 
They slide. They slide. So they, they pivot at the top of the window. And instead of using a normal defroster like a normal car would have, they picked up a hairdryer, a Gillette brand hairdryer, and they taped it under the dash. You can't actually use it because this particular model was recalled for having asbestos in it. These oddities are what drew Cavanaugh to the car in the first place. He discovered the vehicles by scouring Craigslist for clunkers to restore with his younger brother. The car was just so out there. He needed to know more. Me and my brother actually made a list of all the questions. Um, why did they make this car? Who made this car? Was this actually meant to be a production vehicle? To figure it all out, he not only bought a pair of Electrex, he helped build a community around the vehicles, contacted original unique mobility engineers, set up Electrex websites and social media pages, all in the name of not just putting the cars back on the road, but reestablishing their place in electric car history. They were the Elon Musk before Elon Musk. They wanted to uh, make the push towards electric, and uh, they did. They they were a big influence in the car industry, even if not a lot of people know about them. They were a big reason that electric cars are still on the road today. Now, this isn't the usual view of electric cars from the 1970s and 80s. Many of today's electric vehicle enthusiasts call this the crap era, a time when companies just didn't have the technology or design sense to ditch fossil fuel cars. It came after scientists and political leaders called for new technology to reduce dependence on foreign oil. Tonight I want to have an unpleasant talk with you. People like President Jimmy Carter. The energy crisis has not yet overwhelmed us, but it will if we do not act quickly. Government researchers, big automakers, small startups, they all rushed forward with new plans for electric vehicles. The unveiling of a car of the future that would let drivers thumb their noses at the corner filling station. Nelson Benton reports. The Department of Energy's advanced... Unique Mobility was a tiny company making dune buggies in Englewood, and it decided to join the fray in the 1970s. The result was the Electrek. It wasn't cheap, $25,000, about $90,000 in today's dollars. And for that high price, buyers got a vehicle Kavanaugh admits is pretty impractical to drive. So you know how electric cars are supposed to be silent, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, you can hear because the entire bottom is fiberglass. You just get rocks kicked up straight into the bottom. It is, it is not a quiet car. We can't go very far either. The company advertised a 100-mile range. And that's not true at all. Realistically, you'd probably get 50 miles of range at best. The power is also underwhelming. Eventually, we reach a slight slope with just a little bit of snow. All right, let's see if it'll make it past this ice floor. Come on. No. We need a small push. But Kavanaugh thinks there was demand for this car. In his opinion, the bigger holdup for this and other crap-era electric cars just goes back to how they looked. It is so stupid. You probably saw how stupid it looks driving. It does not look like it should drive. And here's the thing. The people who made the vehicle completely agree. I, I never thought that the electric was a handsome car. It wasn't. This is 84-year-old John Gould, the founder of Unique Mobility. Today, he lives in Lakewood, and he says his company didn't want to make an ugly car. Because of the economy, at that time, we had to just cut somewhere. The bizarre windows, the ill-fitting body, all those choices saved money. Gould says it wasn't a problem because the Electrek was what the car industry calls a mule. A mule is your test vehicle to prove out the mechanics and the durability of the whole system. So to us at the time, if we were making 50 or 100 of them, that was going to be okay. 
His real goal was something else. Well, let me show you what the car would have been if we'd have gone further in production. Gould shuffles into a back room and comes out with a plastic car model. It's dark blue and sleek, smoothed over like a river stone. Our actual preference was going to be this car. And we picked the name Mariah for it. (laughs) That was our code name for that vehicle. Uh, There was a song called The Wind of Mariah. Do you remember, that would be way before your time, there was a singer called Frankie Lane. He sang that song. Gould wanted to build the Mariah here in Colorado, but his company board had other ideas. Unique mobility engineers were way ahead of the game on electric car technology. They figured it'd be smarter to sell those parts and that expertise rather than try to make cars themselves. We ended up doing research for almost every major car manufacturer in the world with people like BMW, a few million dollars worth of work for both Ford and General Motors in the, in the 90s. To Gould's frustration, those car makers never turned the work into a viable product, but he thinks they're now putting the knowledge to work in new models. Meanwhile, his company rebranded as UQM Technologies and kept making electric components. In 2019, it sold to a Dutch conglomerate for about $100 million. Despite the success, Gould still thinks about his old vision for the company. Particularly when I see some of the new electric car companies that are coming on board, they're raising billions of dollars. And I think how if I was in my 20s, 30s, or 40s, or whatever, I would probably give it a swing. I'd try, I'd try to go for the billions of dollars and do this. As for people restoring the electric now, he's a little perplexed. I'm surprised, but why not, <laughs> I guess? Then he takes a second, looks at the model of the Mariah, at binders full of papers and photos tracking the company's history, and he admits he's flattered someone would go through all the trouble. And uh, I'd like to say thanks to them that they're reviving the, <laughs> that old vehicle. He says it's a recognition his company did help make electric cars a reality. It just took a few decades longer than he'd hoped. I'm Sam Brash, CPR News. And you can see pictures of the electric and the Mariah at CPRnews.org. That is Colorado Matters for today, with thanks to a team that has a lot of range. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Rachel Estabrook. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. And I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC.